Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. All right, we are back. We're not back. We, I'm just, I'm sorry, I'm thrown off here because just as I'm going on the air, there's a tweet from someone named Michelle Doty. It says, from the info, I have a sneaking suspicion today's show will be a snob fest. Could that be right? It's, I don't think so. I might be a snob, but I don't think the guests are going to be snobs. It's the highest compliment I've ever yeah. received. This is So anyway, as I said before, we're back. They found um, so let me tell you who's here and who's not going to be a snob. Uh, and uh, that's the panel of the nose. Uh, we'll start with Rebecca Castellani, a non-snobby entertainment director at Bridge Street Live in Collinsville, Connecticut, one of the least snobby places in New England. Uh, and James Hanley is co-founder of Cine Studio at Trinity College, uh, where uh, is Phantom Thread there right now? Yes, it is. Yeah. Yes, through oh, tomorrow. Oh, what a great place to see Phantom Thread. Go see Phantom Thread. I, and then you can see a real snob, too. Yeah. That's this good <laughs> snobby already. <laughs> the Daniel Day-Lewis character is like a real snob, although it turns out Daniel Day-Lewis in real life has a flip phone. We just learned that in the last couple of days. Um, <laughs> Sam Hatch co-hosts the very, very, very not snobby, The Culture Dogs, Indeed. on Sunday nights, yeah. 8 p.m. at WWUH. It's really one of the few times we permit you to listen to a different radio station, but they are on at 8 p.m. on WWUH. And I don't even know what's on 8 p.m. here on Sunday nights, so I don't feel like I'm hurting anybody's feelings. <laughs> um, all right, so uh, here's our plan for today. In the second segment, we all went to see Ready Player One, which I think maybe that's what she's worried about, Michelle Doty. Um, mm. And um, anyway, we and that's the uh, new Spielberg movie. It takes place in the future, in 2045, when apparently we're going to have virtual reality. I cannot wait. Um, I, I still don't get why <laughs> that's in the future, but these, these guys will explain it to me. They've read the book. Uh, and uh, in the first segment, we, well, our second topic is going to be doing dishes, which has now been officially – I don't know how official you can get about this, but uh, as a result of some kind of like George Soros-funded study, well, it has been determined that uh, doing dishes is absolutely the worst job in the house. So we're going to talk about that. But we're going to begin by the fairly recent announcement, although I'm sure Sam has known about this for at least a year, uh, that Amazon has acquired the rights to Lord of the Rings. They are going to make for a mere $250 million. <laughs> That's all. <laughs> um, which is like 25 episodes of Game of Thrones, which is like the very expensive thing to make. But anyway, uh, for $250 million, uh, they are going to make um, a five-year television series, 50 episodes, something like that. Uh, and that's really all we know about it. You know, casting has been announced, although it's rumored that Tony Blair will be playing Elrond. And you know what I say? <laughs> Give him a chance, all right? Give him a chance to show what he can do as an actor. Uh, as somebody pointed out to me on Twitter, he already has experience not being able to do anything about weapons of mass destruction. <laughs> so... Um, a, a joke I wish I'd written, but I didn't. All right, so, um, so Sam, I will start with you because... I mean, this thing, th there's so many different ways to kind of look at the tea leaves of this. But maybe the first question to ask, given the fact that there is this epic Peter Jackson trilogy of Lord of the Rings, does there need to be another Lord of the Rings? 
Yeah, for me, it, it seems like the, the, the body's not even you know, buried yet. It's, it's still pretty fresh. I mean, I, I you know, rewatch at least Actually, one or- of the films. The orcs uh, don't even bury their bodies. They it's just, true. They'll just leave them to rot. And then just them. pull them out of the walls. <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah. We're going to be accurate here and not snobbish. They do eat their kin. Mm, right. Tasty orc meat. But... <laughs> I, I rewatch those films on a fairly regular basis, so it does seem a little too soon to retell the entire uh, tale, but maybe digging into something like The Silmarillion, which is this huge kind of sprawling epic, but not very detailed. It, it kind of lends itself to a televisual adaptation because it's just a lot of this happened here, these people went there, and there's a lot of blanks in the middle. So you could adapt that like you know 200 episodes if you wanted to so i'd rather see that new stories you know and you could get really creative and, and make it your own game of thrones if you wanted to children yeah. of huron would be great yeah see yeah. we're is running it, deep here yeah, is it <laughs> is it, uh, is it contemplated i don't know i just read some of the preliminary stories that they would do that or or i mean I, my sense was that they were going to make i mean the stuff that you're talking about occurs in a sort of a different volume, although most of it is sort of at this in this long appendix. Yeah, at the at end the of end Return of, of the King, Rings. it came with this hefty set of appendices, which actually Peter Jackson drew from heavily as well, mm-hmm. and also for his Hobbit trilogy, which is a little bit less received, uh, which also makes this a little ponderous because right now, uh, a Lord of the Rings or a Hobbit Middle Earth kind of world entity, uh, you know, fifty episodes of that might not seem like such a draw to people after they would all been burnt out by by the Hobbit series. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if that's going to pay off for Amazon as much as they think it will. But I'm go- I'm I'm pulling for him because I am one of those fools that does not have Netflix but has Amazon and is just tired of hearing about Netflix all the time. <laughs> so they need a they need to win. Well, as long James as long as he brings that up, I, I, I want to hear you and Rebecca on the aesthetics of all this. But in the business of all this. I was thinking about it today, and I was thinking, this is an interesting bet by Amazon. And I think one of the bet, it's sort of a bet against Comcast et al., right? They're sort of saying that, I mean, they anticipate, I mean, there's no way they can make the series for less than a billion dollars, <laughs> which will be a ceiling that really has never been broken through before. And, and I, can't, I can't imagine that it's worth doing unless they sort of think that the cable delivery model is like the elves kind of in uh, a time of eclipse and their model, their sort of subscription, more, you know, internet Roku-based model is in ascendance. That, that, the only way it makes sense to spend a billion dollars on product is if you think that there's a way to become a really big player. Well, I think that, I mean, Amazon is one of the few players that could actually announce something like that and actually have the bank account to back it and say, yeah, we'll spend the money on that. But I do think that <clears throat> there's a great deal of um, uncertainty, I think, where uh, where delivery is going to go. I mean, you've got a situation now where wireless delivery is something that is not really being paid for for downloads. And so at some point, there's going to be a chess game about who has the system, which people will actually pay for. And the industry is like always like trying to think of ways, how can you make people pay per episode or per event rather than the subscription model? And so that's part of what's going on here. And I do think as well that Netflix has been dumping huge amounts of money into their own plans for productions that um, they're they're behaving very oddly about it. Like running Cine Studio, for example, um, where they won't talk to theaters, they won't they won't even consider um, uh, any uh, any showings of a lot of films that they've bought. And it's not even a matter of just sort of putting out there, oh, we don't do theaters or something like that. But they actually have a 
division which deals with showing movies in theaters, but they won't talk to people. So it's very much a buzz in the art cinema community in particular as to why that is and what their what their agenda is. And a lot of people in the art theater community have come to the conclusion that it's dominance of the market, establishing dominance of the market early. And I think that that probably fits in with the scenario about Lord of the Rings and Amazon is that they their whole business model is about dominating markets and controlling all aspects of it. And I think that they want that sort of like putting down a stamp there and saying, okay, Netflix, you know, this is, we've got more money than you have to do something like this, but you've always got the risk. Can you do it on one thing? Yeah. Like CBS All Access with that one Star Trek show. Right, right, exactly. So um, I I just want to say that uh, uh, the conversation on Twitter is continuing. Uh, Tim Duffy, now they're taunting me. Uh, Tim Duffy is saying, dealing with the Snobfest idea, I think the Toast episode really spoke to the everyday citizen. The Toast episode is like our heaven's gate. It's the worst uh, (laughs) episode. It's our placeholder anyway for the worst episode we've ever done. And It was years ago, and he's taunting us about it. It's like our emoji movie or something. You know, we... (laughs) Anyway, we don't like to talk about the Toast episode. All right, so Rebecca, first of all, we should say that you are not entirely sane on the subject of Lord of the Rings movies because Viggo Mortensen was the occasion of you really fully yes. understanding that you are a woman. Yes, yes. <laughs> Puberty was very much triggered by Viggo Mortensen's half-up, half-down man bun in Return of the King nice. on the big screen. So take make of that what you will. I'm a little right. biased. My big question is, is enough people watching Amazon to justify the cost of something like this because yeah. I have an Amazon Prime account but I'm watching Netflix first it is my like oh I forgot we kind of have that thing and for other reasons it came with Prime it was bundled for a year and yeah. we just kind of took it it's not something I think we're going to continue to pay for long term because there's so many other things out there so I just wonder for the, the dollar amount of this is going to and given that you know as Sam pointed out this the original magnificent trilogy is still being played on TNT yeah. regularly. Non-stop. Like that's You can catch that for free, and that was so fantastic. I mean, before the show started, we were talking about how uh, Return of the King won the best picture of the year it was nominated. I mean, I don't think you're going to have that level of acclaim and success in a reboot television format with Lord of the Rings. Well, there's also, I think, that what's going on here, too, is the actual future of how things get paid for. Yeah. That uh, everybody thinks of things being free, you know, downloading stuff and bootlegging and all the rest of it. And the the holy grail for the industry is to actually have the ability to charge for everything that happens and actually have, like, PayPal, for example, has the model of having a hook on your bank account so that they can take the money directly out, cut out the credit cards, and uh, cut out all the billing mechanisms and actually fit those things together. And I think that that is one of the things that is the – that's the model you look at to Amazon as to what they're doing with products. Yeah. And so I think that the issue in the future, especially with the, the absence of net neutrality, people are going to start paying a lot more for downloading stuff. And it's just a question of when and who initiates it and who's the strongest player in the market to get away with it. Could I just say, uh, this is possibly a snobby comment, um, that speaking as one tiny little voice, whatever my share of the $1 billion is, I would be willing to pay it just to have a Lord of the Rings that didn't have Liv Tyler in it. Um, So, like, just tell me, tell me, hey, Jeff. Call me and just tell me because I'm really – I'd be happy to pay that. I don't know. I'm kind of – am I the only person who – I kind of want to see this. 
I'm re- I'm willing to see it. I'm ready to watch it. I'll certainly watch yeah. it. Don't get me wrong. I'm yeah. not going to say no to more Lord of the Rings content. I yeah, didn't I'm, say no to the Hobbit movies. I'm in. Yeah. I'm kind of excited. <laughs> I mean, I just feel like, you know, I, there was no Tom Bombadil in the first one. Sure. The most important chapter of the book, The Scouring of the Shire, is not dealt with in Though the, nobody the was one. looking for more time at the end. No, no, that's true. true. Yeah. I mean, yeah. people no. were not saying, wow, this could just go 30 more minutes. We need, yeah. we need three <laughs> more endings. You're making the case for why they did this. Clearly. But yeah, the Tom Bombadil thing, at least. You gotta have Tom Bombadil, uh, and and I don't know. There's just there's a lot. I mean, the books are are detailed. Although I did have this sort of Princess Bride experience the first time that I went to read the books with my son. It was maybe ten. I realized that that Tolkien is more obsessed with the English countryside than yes. I had remembered. And dialogue. Every yeah. every copse and sword and hillock. Uh, is is immaculately described, uh, and it doesn't really move around along all that fast. So, so, uh, so but it, but the you know there's a lot of things that weren't done with the movies that you could do, and sure. you know I think it's going to be impossible to top certain things. There, you can't have a better Gandalf than Ian McKellen, right? I mean that's that's done. Yeah, I don't know what you do if you just like you know Peter Cummings him in there or something, or Peter Cushing him. I mean in there with CG or something like you can't. Yeah. Alan Cummings, though, would be a great... Alan Cummings, yeah. <laughs> Okay, so we solved that problem. Yeah. Alan right. Cummings can be yeah. Gandalf. Uh, that's fine. All right, so, um, well, I, we, I guess more to come on that. Does anybody have, like, a final word? Let's do a follow-up. Yes, Let's do a follow-up. It's a little early. <laughs> we'll do a... Uh, every three months, we'll come in and do a check. It'll be like we'll be having back. your teeth yeah. cleaned or something. We'll just uh, get together and talk about how things are with the And sing the one song of Tom Bombadil. Yes. For each <laughs> gathering. We, we should have prepared a song. Yeah, it would have been nice. It would have been nice to do a Tom Bombadil. We use Tom Bombadil as the Litmus test for right. true Lord of the Rings fans. Like, oh, what about Tom Bombadil? And a lot of people will look uh, at you like, what? It's like, oh, you're not a real fan. <laughs> right. the ones Get out. They're yep. the ones who didn't stay for the credits. Exactly. Right. I would like to say that I saw Tom Bombadil when he was still playing the small clubs in Brie. Uh, oh, before, wow. he, yeah, before he became a stadium act. Yeah, and it was like a whole different experience. That's nice. I got some bootlegs of that right. stuff. Okay. <laughs> he used to play console back when the mill town was booming. That's right. Um, all right, we've lost some of the audience here. Um <laughs> All right. Meanwhile, uh, from the Atlantic, doing dishes is the worst. Uh, a forthcoming report from the Council of Contemporary Families, a nonprofit that studies family dynamics, suggests uh, that the answer to the question, and the question is who's going to do the dishes, can have a significant impact on the health and longevity uh, of a relationship. Uh, and it goes on uh, to talk about how this really is the job that nobody wants to do uh, and that there's a as they now say in academia, a gendered component uh, uh, to this whole question, which I think comes as no surprise to anyone. Uh, So uh, we need to talk uh, about who does the dishes. I should say it's a little sort of trailer for the B segment that, you know, that place that he's living in uh, Ready Player One, they don't do the dishes, right? His aunt. His aunt does. Aunt Alice does not do the dishes and her loser boyfriend. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) They don't do the dishes. Dishes are piling up in the sink. And that's kind of a trope, too, the dishes piling up in the sink. So, uh, Rebecca, I'll let you start it off here because you had many things to say as we were emailing or some things to say. About dishwashing? About uh, dishwashing. Yeah, I mean, I'm pro-dishwashing. Out of all the domestic tasks, I think I... I don't like domestic tax in general. We're just going to preface that. I like to be off working. And I until this week, I had a stay-at-home Steve. My lovely boyfriend was staying at home. So I used to come home and at 6 o'clock and be like, where's my dinner? How come there's dishes in the sink? And we had a lovely gender role playing. It was great. Dishes are the one thing I will do. I don't like when somebody does dishes and leaves their dirty dishes in the sink 
for a day. So then when I have to go to do the dishes, it's taking me twice as long because stuff's caked on. That's a real pet peeve. As someone that likes to do dishes, I want to do them when they're still fresh and I feel completely in control. When I'm picking up somebody else's slack on dishes that they should have done yesterday irks me to no end. Yeah, the, the turnover rate. So I'm very passionate good. about dishwashing. Let's put it that way. And it irks me when it's not done correctly. But I, I do enjoy doing it well myself. As, as a lazy male, too, I will acknowledge that as I'm trying to avoid doing the dishes, I will do a little bit of pre-preparation. As I just don't drop it in the sink. Yeah. I'll scrape as much of the crust <laughs> off as possible. Big of you. And, and yeah. And, and, and leave, leave it, in, it for someone else. And leave it for someone else. But in a, you know, like a three-quarters prepared state, yeah. It just needs that little finishing touch. But you still leave them in the sink and don't put them right in the dishwasher when well, you're done. I your actually I I lobby for the dishwasher, that's and that's good. one of those things we have that we don't use that often because either it doesn't work that well or it's you know haunted. I don't know. It, You've got to the reasoning it. changes. You have yeah. a haunted dishwasher. I, I think so. Yeah, it's haunted by a civil war uh, you know spirit. But uh, <laughs> have you talked to Amazon about this? We because should maybe like, get a show going. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so that's the thing. I, I love doing that. You know, just pressing the buttons, putting in little packets, <laughs> the cleaning packets. That's that's my speed for sure. Yeah, I, I'm I'm seriously calling Vera Farmiga during the break. A haunted dishwasher. I could just see that working. The Conjuring Three. So yeah, yeah exactly. Let's see the Warrens. Let's see the Warrens fix that one. Uh, let's see the Warrens get the Tide Pods out of your dishwasher. Have fun, Lorraine. All right. So, um, so the what about eaten Tide Pods? That's right. <laughs> yeah, right. How does the, how does this land for you, James? Well, I I have to say I've always liked. Doing dish washing dishes. I don't know why particularly, but when I was a kid, I used to wash dishes, and my mother took total advantage of that. Yeah. I mean, you know, she, she, she like really encouraged it. But now, I like my husband and I. We we uh, when we're washing dishes, we like it's a talking time. It's a good conversation. You wash dishes time. together. Like, yes, somebody absolutely. washes, somebody drives. Yeah. Yeah. Well, sometimes we switch off. Yeah, it's it's like I don't know. I, I it never occurred to me not to like. Not to like doing it, and I do like times when you can actually sort of you know link it up with conversation, and then it's something that is uh, you. Do, I don't know. I just don't think of it as a chore. On I the just, flip side, you can use it as an escape from conversation. It's yeah. my favorite excuse at parties when I'm with dealing really with a situation loud I don't running. want. Can I help you do some dishes? And <laughs> yeah. then I go in the other room and do the uh-huh. dishes. That is a great. Well, if escape. you have like boring party guests, and yeah, stuff, yeah, you can go. You can take yourself off and say, "Oh, you have to oh, clean I'm up." Sorry, <laughs> I must well, say when I'm in the zone too, I do yeah. enjoy. Because it, it's kind of you know there's, there's a, a quiet contemplative yeah, yeah moment. I, yeah. I feel like there was like an 80s 90s underground comic uh, about a dishwasher who was like all about the Zen of dishwashing. Zen yeah, and I mean, the art of dishwashing. Yeah, I, mean, yeah. I may be making this up. Maybe I'm just imagining. Sure, like call Amazon. Like <laughs> underground zine type comic strip about some guy who was uh, a Zen oriented dishwasher. Well, apparently we don't at all cor- correspond to. The, well, we do in my case because I I don't particularly enjoy washing dishes. Uh, I enjoy cooking, uh, and then I feel having cooked that, you know, I'm done, which is not a very popular (laughs) position, as it turns out, among any group of people, including – uh, the person that I live with. I think um, that's fair to some extent, though. If you well, I always feel like it takes cooking. like an you know hour and twenty minutes to make a meal. You know, I yeah. can do the dishes in twenty minutes. Uh, um, but I don't know. I mean, obviously, it's a much less glamorous thing. I also do feel as though when we get to the dishwasher, which it sounds like James and his husband don't even use, um, we do sometimes, do. but not 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 a lot. Is it haunted? Well, first of all, <laughs> no, I want to go home and check. Yeah, yeah you should. Yeah. How, how do you know if your dishwasher is haunted? It, it rattles in the middle of the night. Yeah, <laughs> it, it starts up by itself yeah. when you lean on it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but see, another problem is if di- doing the dishes ultimately equates to 
putting things in the dishwasher. And I would like to say that the person uh, who does the dishes in my house usually will put anything. I mean, if the dog would fit in the lower rack, she would put it uh, in the dishwasher. Uh, she would put anything in the dishwasher, uh, including no. things that I don't think should go in the dishwasher. But No wooden spoons. No wooden spoons. No wooden spoons. No. I don't know why, but my mother has yelled at me enough times. I know you cannot do that. No professionally sharpened knives. Like the yes, knife sharpener no, always yells at the, the knife sharpener can tell that you've put your knife in the dishwasher and he yes. yells at me about it. He goes, this knife has been in the oh. dishwasher. So, um, But anyway, it, the other problem is as the second ranking dishwasher in the house or putter of things in the actual Ooh. dishwasher – you know, I have my own theories about how things should go in the dishwasher. Like loading the dishwasher is like this whole <laughs> that other area. That causes more fights than anything else in my, my house. My wife will so, reorganize my yeah. dishwashing yep. arrangements. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I don't yeah. like that. Like if I load up the dishwasher and then I come and I look, you know, 10 minutes later and things have been reordered. But it's all about Who the taste. You didn't do it most Wait a minute. To reload the dishwasher yeah. before it's washed? Yeah, re- I think the, you're the yeah. only one in a truly successful relationship. Yeah. <laughs> I can't imagine. I mean, really. It's all about the, you know, the maximum usage of the space. I yeah. had roommates in college that would put cups in the top of the dishwasher up mm-hmm. so they oh, would yeah. then fill uh, with water fill and with soap. <laughs> and every time I'd go out to the okay. dishwasher, I would I just bite my one. fist and raise I will give you that, that one. Yeah, I can see reordering <laughs> that. Have you yeah. ever loaded the dishwasher for? What are you doing? Yeah, no, I crazy. think everybody has a little sort of, you know. I didn't realize I was this passionate about dishwashing yeah. until today. Right. I knew this would take over the whole show. Yeah. Right. You know, we could easily do a whole show about dishwashing. I don't know that it would be a popular show. I think the guy who's making fun of the toast show right now feels like we're just throwing a fastball right down his... We're doing it for oh, him. Yeah. Yeah. This it's is all you, for buddy. you, man. Um, but no, I just thought... It, I, I mean, it's something anyway that I hadn't thought about before that... I mean, it seems like we're very atypical here that I'm, you know... Well, Sam and I are both... Shir- yeah. We're shirkers. We're shirkers. Yeah, it's, it's, you guys are the weirdos. It's starting the process that's hardest for me. <laughs> well, yeah, once I'm in it, I'm okay. Yeah. yeah. Once you yeah. get into the zone? Yeah. And when yeah. I'm in the zone, I'm great. I can go for two hours. Yeah. I, I have this other thing that I do, which is like the in things that I. <laughs> I've never admitted this even to my significant other, and I'm about to say it on the radio. Great. Things that I feel that are not going to be handled properly, I will actually wash them. Like you know, at the end of my cooking process, so it's for like example, a control thing. Yeah. Well, like I don't want the. I don't want to get yelled at by the knife sharpener, so I will often just wash the knives and put them put them in the knife block. I know to leave things alone, the stoneware, the, the stone wooden ware. things. Yes. Like they they have their own little collective pile <laughs> off to the side for where I wait the, the expert. That, that you don't wash. Right. Well, yeah, I just don't know how <laughs> yeah. to do them and, right. in the proper fashion. So no. Well, yes. the key to avoiding any task, yeah. any task, is to not know how to learn. Exactly. Don't learn how to do it correctly. Or break yeah. it. Or yeah, break yeah. it. Yeah. Asked again. Oh, I shouldn't do that again. I used to work on the lawn crew as a college student at the Hartford Insurance Group. And the, the key there was if there was something you didn't like doing, you should break the piece of equipment. It's involved, and they'll <laughs> never trust you with it again. Uh, all right. So we're going to take a little break here. Um, you may feel free to – th- we're not getting a lot of tweets about uh, dishwashing, so uh, feel free. It's uh, WNPR Colin. That's the Twitter account where you can also just make fun of the show. Uh, seems to be the use of it today. Or you can email me at Colin, C-O-L-I-N, at WNPR.org. Let's take a break. When we come back, ready, player one. Three good wishes, three good kisses I will give to thee Wash the dishes, wipe the dishes Ring the bell for tea Three good wishes, three good kisses All right, we are back. Um, A couple of things uh, that I just will quickly announce tonight. If you'd like to spend like the month of April with me, I can make that happen. Uh, Tonight I will be at Real Artways with Steve Allman, a very funny writer. Uh, At 7.30 we're going to be talking about his book, which is sort of about the last 18 months in America. 
So it's not really a happy book, but uh, it might be a funny book at times, and we may have a funny conversation. You're welcome to come to Real Artways tonight at 7.30 for that. And then on Thursday night, Matt Taibbi and I will probably have a very similar conversation <laughs> now that I think about it, and that will be at the Mark Twain House. Um, I also want to say, speaking of the Toast Show, since these horrible people on uh, Twitter feel uh, compelled to bring this up um, – we are. We have this plan, this longstanding plan, that what we want to do is take the three worst shows that we've ever done, one of which absolutely is the Toast Show, uh, and redo them and see if we can do better jobs, make better shows out of them. So if you want to like nominate, <laughs> since you're feeling mean anyway, like um, a kettle of worms, right? Yeah, uh, you feel free to nominate either by, at WNPR Colin, or you can email me or whatever, and like, tell me which shows. I mean, we think we know which three they are, but uh, but let us know. Uh, but try not to hurt like the producer's feelings and stuff. Um, all right. So now it's time to talk about Ready Player One. This is the new Spielberg movie. It is set in 2045. Virtual reality is a big thing. Uh, then uh, it is about uh, people who are – it was released on Easter weekend and it is about people who are in virtual reality hunting for Easter eggs for the purposes – of bettering their fortunes and also, well, lots of other reasons too, I guess. Um, and so let's hear a little clip from this. I think the only voice you hear is um, Mark Rylance. Mark Rylance plays uh, a socially awkward, if there is any other kind, uh, video game and VR developer. It's actually part of the trailer. You could, we couldn't get a clip. Um, but anyway, he, and he reappears in his own virtual reality as a character named Anorak who bestows certain keys. There's no way I can possibly explain this. Here's the clip. Three keys. Three hidden challenges test for worthy trades. Revealing three hidden keys. To three magic gates. And those with the skill to survive these straits will reach the end. Where the prize awaits. Let the hunt begin. Well, quite an interesting little bit of music there. Although the main part of the music to me sounds like some kind of reality show. And it's like <laughs> one bachelorette will get the rose. <laughs> the um, end was Tinkerbell. Oh, there you go. All right. So I'm just going to kind of go around the table. I mean, uh, I, James, did you read the book? No. So you and I did not read the book. Rebecca and Sam, I think, did read the book. I'm on my fourth time. Uh-huh. Wow. Um, so let's start with Sam and we'll go around the table. This way. Just, just, uh, uh, Sam's a snob. Yeah. <laughs> Give us your uh, hot take on RPO. Uh, we were talking about this before. It, it was a crushing disappointment for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yet I like the film mm-hmm. uh, because of the, you know, the, the essence of Steven Spielberg directing this. Uh, the, the book itself was you know, basically a celebration of, of nerd culture and, and people like Mark Rylance's character, James Halliday, was the creator of this VR world. And it's, it's kind of a weird mix because in some levels it's a young adult novel, but then in other levels it's for people like myself, a little bit older, who lived through this period of the 80s and were into you know, the onset of gaming and had TRS-80s and the original Apple computers and all that sort of stuff. Um, so yeah, so it's, it's, it's that whole world with Spielberg was, you know, he was 
making films at the time all that was going on and influencing the, the people that this book is for. So he was a weird pick for the person to direct a film about the material that he was creating because he wouldn't hold it dear enough, I, I don't think, that he would appreciate the kind of almost soul in the nostalgia of the book. And so uh, – but – He's a very, very powerful person, so having him being an executive producer or a producer would have been fantastic. But for me, someone like Edgar Wright, who would, uh, recently did Baby Driver and did Scott Pilgrim vs. the World, would be able to take the chances to bring the book to life and deliver the things that, that the nerds like me were looking for. Um, but he did deliver the Willy Wonka-esque tale, which I knew he would, and he about a you know plucky young uh, nerd who's kind of – finds a little bit of a rapport with the dead uh, genius creator and then sets out to save the world because there's an evil corporation that's also looking to solve this puzzle and that will give them control of the world within the world. That is the oasis. All right. We, we should be safe, speaking of Willy Wonka, that we were told uh, by producer Jonathan McNichol today that uh, Spielberg, Spielberg back in the day made a considerable effort to get Gene Wilder to play the role that Mark Rylance wound up uh, playing. So uh, James Hanley, I don't know, what do you make of this film? Well, I my experience with it was, I mean, I knew it was coming and I had read about it and I didn't really have a strong, like not having read the book or, you know, I, I, I was vaguely intrigued, but I didn't have a strong plan to see it. And I have to say, when I first, I went to see it in IMAX 3D and I, I, I was having a really hard time for the first maybe 15, 20 minutes because it just was, I found it overwhelming, but it's also underwhelming. And it's my pet peeve with 3D that it actually reduces your universe and makes you feel Absolutely. claustrophobic rather than uh, expanding it. And, and they sell it as expanding your awareness. And I find completely the opposite. And so I was ready really to to walk and then maybe go and see it in 2D. But I stayed with it and I actually got drawn into it um, for, I don't know, I guess really different reasons from uh, people who were looking for something from the book. Maybe uh, you guys, maybe, you know, you you, you have a, a, a sense of what this story was about. I really didn't until I got drawn into it. And I thought it's sort of fascinating that Steven Spielberg would uh, almost back-to-back -back release this along with The Post, the Post which yeah. is a very <laughs> conventional movie. It tells an important story, of course, but it's very conventional in its style. And I have a feeling that uh, I mean I don't know the, the the genesis of this property that but he has enough money to sort of buy it and decide that he wants to do it. I mean, what is he trying to do? Show his his relevance, or is he really fascinated with it? I would sort of lean to him being really fascinated with it because what drew me in actually were sort of I I don't know sort of non uh, non nerd values in a way the story. And the characters and playing with the characters that don't totally work, but I found it an absorbing story. And then when I went to see it, I did go and see it a second time because I wanted to see, you know, is this really me? Just uh, maybe I had some sort of physical thing about 3D. And watching it in 2D, I was much more fascinated with it visually because it's yeah. so detailed and it has such an extraordinary sense of um, actually paradoxically depth. Mm which in 2D, you think, well, why would that be? But it, it just looks better to me, and it's more interesting. And there are a lot of things about it that are going on in the background. They spent a lot of money in the backgrounds. And so I found it very satisfying in the end, quite unexpectedly, because I thought that I'd find, you know, well, what the hell, I, 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 can I sit through this? Because it was just like a sensory overload without really understanding it, mm -hmm. and then got totally drawn in, which very rarely happens to me when I'm watching a movie. Rebecca? 
Yeah, I the book I picked up is an airplane read, so it definitely kind of has that quality to it. It's frothy, it's fun, it's not necessarily something you got to think a ton at. And I am one of those. And you know, this book was I think marketed as, as Sam kind of alluded to to millennials, but for the older generation. Yeah. And I think there is something, we kind of touched on this in the emails, with millennials and having this nostalgia for a time that we never inhabited ourselves. Mm-hmm. That whole idea of like here at the home, a longing for a home that was never your home. The, we have that really, I think, more so than any other generation, just uh, aggrandizing the 80s and the 70s and really uh, participating in that pop, pop culture that wasn't ours. I mean, I remember watching Back to the Future for the first time as a girl and thinking this was the greatest movie of all time, whereas a lot of stuff that was marketed to me that was coming out that was more appropriate for my age wasn't appealing to me like that. So I, this book occupies a strange niche where I, its audience is really kind of split into two characters because if you were reading this seriously as someone that grew up in the 80s, you're kind of like, well, it's a little bit like a YA movie. The plot's a little cheap. It's a little cheesy in parts, but it's an enjoyable read, and it is very, uh, your imagination is very stimulated, a la, you know, the experience of reading something like Harry Potter. So it's got a lot of those things that were really fabulous, but again, completely specific to a reading experience. So I was really worried as to how a lot of this is going to get translated, because it's so chock full of so many references, and though it is dealing with pop culture to make a movie about it seemed really counterintuitive to me. So I went into it fearing the worst. I, like Sam, had moments where I just was like, this is the worst movie ever. And moments <laughs> where I'm like, I'm really, really enjoying this. So it's very hard to critique or assign any sort of letter grade to or even a, a final feeling because I, I shifted probably 200 times during the film in moments where I was just filled yeah. with rage and moments where I really loved it. <laughs> I, I went in with very, very low expectations. I did not think I was going to like this movie. And I didn't particularly like it, but it didn't ruin my night or anything like that either. And really, as I was walking out of it, Maybe similar to you a little bit, James, I was sort of thinking, well, I mean, there were certain things about some of these characters that were a little bit engaging. I don't think this is particularly good. I mean, it's interesting because one of the things Spielberg typically does is milk things for emotions. Yeah, when, you, when you think yeah. about sort of E.T. Or, or, or any work like that, there is no emotional quality that he doesn't try to explore, right. sometimes yeah. in a fairly manipulative and, 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 and even at times kind of treacly way. Yeah. And this is sort of the opposite of that. I mean, it seems as though when he sets up any kind of relationship uh, in this movie, he just kind of suggests that you consult what you already know from other movies about relationships of this kind, uh, as opposed yeah. to really kind of laying out the valences and yeah. the specific relationship. And and so, I mean, that that troubled me a little bit. Um, I will say that I, I do think, first of all, that Mark Rylance is, you know, particularly if Daniel Day-Lewis is really retiring, Mike, Mark Rylance, among male actors anyway, is, might be the best there mm-hmm. is right now. I just saw him on Broadway as Philippe V and Farinelli and the King, and he's just breathtaking. And he really makes something out of this. He, he does, He's yeah. wearing a... I've never seen a wig that calls more attention to itself <laughs> as a wig. Like the entire time that you're looking at this person, you keep thinking, well, that's a wig. Uh, boy, is that a wig. But um, notwithstanding that, Rylance, I think, you know, they sort of give him a chance to sort of... Um, hammer home the message of the movie uh, at the end in, in a way that really could be a little overdetermined and didactic. But I don't know. Rylance, he can sell you almost anything. And I think one of the reasons I walked out feeling a little bit better about this movie is that Mark Rylance told me to feel better about it. Yeah, the, the, some of my favorite parts of the film, that, that the closest the film came to kind of recreating a, a real sense of nostalgia for me were the, the bit with him 
and his younger self in his bedroom with all mm. the cool posters and just the old console video game. And there was just like a kind of like a purity to that. That felt the most magical. Despite all the exciting exactly. visual <laughs> graphics, that small scene, that one scene no for me. VR, no nothing. That felt really special. Absolutely. And, and even some of the bits where they had the re- recreations from you know, cameras that had taken you know, you know, lunchroom arguments with him and, and Simon Pegg's character, like that stuff, you know, it, it had a real kind of, you know, obviously like a Steve Jobs, you know, Wozniak kind of throwback feel to it. Um, but yeah, just, I don't know, the film would take the time to slow down a little bit and let you have a, a personal moment. You know, uh, I, that's when it really worked for me. Yeah, I, I, I agree about that, the personal moments and that slowing down. But I also think that one of the things, well, for me anyway, which fascinated me is that unlike a sort of regular Steven Spielberg movie, which we talked about this t- telegraphing things and the emotional content and so on, that, that there is no telegraphing in this film of, of from scene to scene, and every scene is like like you you I I found myself having to reset myself though with those personal scenes that were really quite interesting and ended too soon for me, mm-hmm. but then there were it would go off onto something else where you had to you felt like you had to completely reset yourself. And I'm intrigued as to, you know, Steven Spielberg's attitude to this. Has he got a crew of people who are, you know, like telling him all this stuff and explaining all this stuff to him <laughs> and, and making a structure? Or is he really trying to make a point? And I, I can't figure that one out. Yeah, James, well, well, I have you here. Um, I want to go on to Rebecca about this too. But, you know, I think one of the things that the movie does that's really smart. So the movie very much is uh, in order even to succeed in this world, this fictional world, you have to know a lot of popular culture. I mean, the the game that you're in, this kind of life or death game, almost literally, uh, you have to know a lot of popular culture to the, the way that Katniss uh, needs to know archery. you got to know... But nostalgic uh, popular yeah. culture. Nostalgic popular yeah. culture, yeah. 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 Mostly modern 80s. culture. Yeah. There's no culture. That's the right. whole yeah. thing you're given. The and, only culture is in this VR. And so there, there's – I actually thought one of the more brilliant things that they did was there's one scene where they wind up kind of in the sh- movie The Shining. <laughs> yeah. And one of the characters is not familiar with The Shining and therefore cannot function <laughs> right. in this yeah, environment. Can't navigate. And, yeah. and it's yeah. a really nice <laughs> yeah. kind of allegory for what life really is like these days in a, yeah. in a world that's so self-referential. Yeah. yeah. You right. know, that you if you wind up at a dinner party where everybody else knows some piece of popular culture that you don't know, you really – you're like that yeah. character, right? Right, no, and this whole, this idea of a meme, we've got like a meme of a week that mm-hmm. every week something else is all over everything on social media, and if you're not completely literate yeah. with that, you're lost, you're, you've been left in the dust. Or if you don't subscribe to Netflix like myself. Right, that's, right, that's, that's what a, are you doing? A good three quarters not of any given snobby. party that's not happening <laughs> but, for me. I guess I'm wondering, does this movie have a point of view about this? Because there's two possible points of views, which is that, you know, uh, a very kind of throwback attitude about popular culture and the celebration of it and the investment of it is a wonderful thing and it brings great happiness or that we're too invested in this stuff you know that that I, I, and I'm I, not sure that this movie I don't know what well, yeah what do you think its point of view is well I, I I suspect its point of view actually is unease because I think that one of the things that faces entertainment generally but um, filmmaking in particular is the idea of creating totally artificial environments and involving the body like with VR and and, and actually um, turning storytelling into more of an experiential device, really, that involves your body in ways that are totally different. And I think that somebody like Spielberg, I can imagine that he's very aware of that. And he's t- spoken about filmmaking and sort of, you know, manipulative images and things like that and how um, uh, VR, he, I think I heard him interviewed some time ago about talking about uh, VR and how in, in, in VR really 
puts a premium on changing your body state, actually, at the time that you're experiencing something. And this film, it, it does have some of that quality to it, and it's exploring that quality. And then it's sort of breaking away and saying, well, yeah, but there's all of this other stuff Take a break. that's going yeah, go on. Outside. Take a break, yeah. go outside, and yeah, and see, you know, where's your, where's your aunt, for example? Yeah. Or where, where are you living in this stack of, uh, of, of uh, trailer homes? And, and it's, it's a, I wouldn't say it's a warning, but it's an interesting reflection, I think, of unease about where things go that you might not fully understand yet. The book was similar to that, too. And I I almost kind of want to see it just go full guns for this oasis, this virtual reality world being like a new evolution. I almost want to see him go that way because there's so many dystopian sci-fi things like surrogates, mm-hmm. WALL-E or whatever that are, you know. Well, uh, also direct uh, yeah. implantation of chips, for example, yeah. and linking the human brain with actual image making and creating images that you then become a participant in a way that you have a function in changing the story, for example, yep. uh, which is a completely turning on its head the whole idea of writing a story even. Yeah. So you know, one question I have as we're kind of wrapping up here, so Rebecca, you know, th- there is um, one argument that's been made about this movie and I think you could sort of add Avengers Infinity War that's coming soon is you're going to reach a moment where we can't make a movie that's more saturated in geek geekiness yeah. and geek celebration than Ready Player One or Avengers Infinity War that, that maybe we have hit some kind of yeah. peak and, and are going to move towards a downside. And, and I wonder about this movie in that way too because even though it's a celebration yeah. of geeks, as is so often the case, but I think especially true here, you know, uh, did you read The Nicks, the movie, the, the, the book, The Nicks, the novel? No. Because it, it has a great thing about sort of people who are playing multiplayer games and stuff like that and how their lives really do fall apart and their bodies fall yeah. apart and everything falls apart. And these people are kind of a young and attractive yep. and fit. And well, like, this is one of the things that drove me crazy about the book and drove me crazy yeah. about the movie is that they both kind of end with, and it's not really a spoiler to say, that ends with this kind of Aesop's fable, like you should not live so much in yeah. the VR world, yeah, children. Right. But there was nothing in the book or the movie to support that because yeah. they were all having such a great time in the Oasis and the rest of the world seemed so crummy and there was no part of the book that, that led you... That gets to the heart of why Spielberg chose yeah. to yeah. That's why I wish they just so, pushed yeah. for that exactly. more. And yeah. I, you know, it's things like he says, he's this throwaway line in the beginning. The only thing we do not on the VR is eat, sleep, and wash our dishes. <laughs> <And it's just laughs> like, it all comes together. I, yeah. That I drove me nuts. Don't even include that line if you're not going to then show any sort of real world sustenance. I it just that stuff kind of just irks me a little bit. That's and, I, a, and that is very Spielbergy too. Yeah, I, I think. Uh, all right, we have to stop here just so we'll have time to make some recommendations. So let's stop. Ready Player One. You make up your mind whether to go see it. I'm sure we've given you. Almost no guidance whatsoever. <laughs> Today's show was produced by Jonathan McPants with help from me, Kion Wolf, and Betsy Kaplan. Part of Bill Curry was played by Simon Pegg. We'll be back on Monday with news from over the weekend on The Scramble. And now, back to Colin. All right, it is time for our excellent panel to make non-snobby recommendations. Uh, So, uh, Sam, you want to go first? 
Yeah, I'll throw down a quick one since we were keeping it literary and there's also a connection to Ready Player One. Uh, I'm a little late to the game on this. It came out, I think, late last year. But the new book from Andy Weir called Artemis, which is a nice little, uh, not a direct reference to a character's name from Ready Player One, but just coincidence. Uh, but it's his follow-up to The Martian, and it's not as good as The Martian, even though I'm recommending it. It's a totally different tone. It's set on a on the moon, and he spends so much time world-building with this you know, moon base and community. And it's about this young girl who's a smuggler and gets involved in a little bit of corporate espionage and a little bit of a heist that goes wrong. And it's just a fun, light read. It reminded me uh, of Ready Player One and just how much of a page turner it is. Right. So you, ha- good- you have to enjoy, as was sort of the case with The Martian, the solution of technical problems. There yes, are a lot of technical exactly. problems being solved here. By the way, the audio version is read by Rosario Dawson. She's amazing. Oh. She does like a whole bunch of um, incredible accents and yeah. stuff like that. She's tremendous. I wouldn't have guessed, uh, having seen her and stuff, that she so, could do so many different... So, yeah, could yeah, check it out before Ridley Scott makes a movie out of it. All right. James, <laughs> what, have you, what have you got for us? Well, a related thing uh, that uh, I found a really amazing read about the history of... Uh, of, of electronic surveillance, a book called Surveillance Valley by Yasha Levine, which given what's happening right now um, with Cambridge Analytica, it's a really amazing book about where it came from. Military, of course, a military source. <clears throat> um, another book that I'm reading that's really uh, absorbing The Sparshalt Affair by Alan Hollinghurst, which I really like. And the last thing is we have uh, April in Paris Film Festival starting on Sunday with the amazing pianist uh, Patrick Miller from Hart School who will be playing for Marcel Lerbier's film uh, uh, Matthias Pascal, which uh, is on Sunday afternoon at 1.30. It's a really amazing experience to watch a silent film with a great pianist. And so highly recommended. The beginning of a whole week of interesting films. I would just also, uh, as I sort of suggested at the beginning of this, uh, if you didn't see Phantom Thread, which I feel might be a slightly underrated movie, James has it there at Sydney Studio. If I had, didn't have every minute of my life scheduled these days, I would go see it again. It's the movie from last year that I'm most looking forward to seeing again. Seeing it on James's equipment would be the best way that you could possibly do it. It's in 4K, by the way, too, which mm-hmm. is the ultra-high definition version. Rebecca? So I'm going to give you your lowbrow pop culture to supplement <laughs> all this highbrow pop culture. Uh, mine was pretty low. <laughs> Well, it's still a book. <laughs> All right. So I either watch really, really dark television shows or I watch like frothy reality shows. But I don't like reality shows about people's families. I like them to be task driven. So I like things like America's Sex Top Model, Project Runway, Chopped. So the two shows I'm going to give you are an intersection of many of these different genres of food, competition, design. The first one, I'm sure someone has had to have endorsed this already. If if not, I'm the first. This is amazing. Netflix's Queer Eye is Fabulous. I, I've thought about maybe doing a, a nose you episode should. where we do it. It's this, yeah. really, really good. You will laugh. You will cry. There's one of the most Very honest good. conversations about police and race relations in yeah. this country I've seen. It is fantastic. Highly recommend. Um, the second one, and this is hardly new, but it's on its 10th season, just started as RuPaul's Drag Race. I have never seen a show that intersects more elements of different reality television shows so seamlessly with so much humor and heart. So if you're looking just to tune off and watch something silly that is going to make you feel good, I highly recommend. All right. So um, the thing that I'm going to recommend that's sort of easy to do is, uh, I was just trying to look up the title of it, but um, 
it is a YouTube clip that is um, a fabulously edited montage of golden age movie stars uh, of, of the age of great movie musicals that involve dancing. And they are dancing to Uptown Funk. Um, and and <laughs> it's it, great. it really is good. I mean, whoever did it has got the hand claps right down and, and, and just everything is just perfectly synced in, in kind of a wonderful way. And you see the, Nicol- and the Nicholas brothers are just, you know. I mean, uh, but, uh, but all kinds of wonderful people. Obviously, a lot of Astaire, a lot of Gene Kelly, but all Ann Miller, all kinds of people like that. Yeah, you see them. And, but it sort of makes it, it leads me into something that I've been thinking a little bit about. It's called Old Movie Stars Dance to Uptown Funk. Thank you, Jonathan. <laughs> um, which is, I actually, so uh, I have to go back. I have a minute or so. I can quickly tell this story. So we've got a bat mitzvah coming up in the family. And so the mom said, uh, you know, we're hiring a DJ, but you know, somebody suggests some uh, other dance tunes other than the soulless techno that all the DJs play at bat mitzvahs these days. And I thought, you know, that's sort of an odd thing because I don't see it that way. I actually sort of feel like we're living in a golden age of dance music, of contemporary dance music that is appealing to people also in their 50s and 60s. And I think about Bruno Mars. I mean, Uptown Funk is a great song to dance to. I hate Uptown Funk. I know a lot of people do hate it. (laughs) But but, but also Bruno's larger oeuvre really has like, you know, five or six really great songs that, you know, certainly hark back to Jackie Wilson and hark back to um, Minneapolis funk the way uh, Uptown Funk uh, does and stuff like that. I would say Pharrell Williams, I know people are tired of Happy, although Happy is a really nice and really good song. But I mean, Pharrell Williams has done a tremendous amount of stuff, often working with uh, hip hop stars like Jay-Z and Kanye West uh, that's incredibly danceable, has these kinds of horns. This new guy, he's not really new. He comes out of the British boy band world, Aston Marigold. And I I know everybody's tired of Get Stupid, which is on a commercial now. And you can't avoid it. But like a, a lot of his stuff, same kind of thing. Tons of horns, very danceable, very familiar kind of beats to somebody in their 40s, 50s, 60s. Uh, and, and Janelle Monet obviously doing the same kind of stuff. If you can't dance to tightrope, there's something wrong with you, I think. Uh, so I sort of feel like this is a good time. This is a good time to get everybody out on the dance floor at a wedding or a bat mitzvah or something like that. There's always kind of a challenge. What are the songs yeah. that's going to make grandma and mom and, yeah. and, and the kids all go out on the floor together? Yeah, it's always waves. You know, the, right. the old people yeah. rush off the stage yeah. when the yeah. new stuff starts. And I, I think all of these artists, and you could throw in Beyonce and a few other people like that, have really actually created that phenomenon for yeah. us. I don't feel bad about dance music right now. I feel good about it. All right. So anyway, <laughs> let's uh, thank, ver- to thank very much Rebecca Castellani uh, and Sam Hatch and James Hanley. And thanks to everybody who worked on The Nose. And we'll be back on Monday. Talking about this and talking about that. Talk about everything as a matter of fact, oh yeah. Talk about Torrington, Vernon, Danbury, Waterbury, Oliveberry, Woodbury, hitting on New Britain, Vernon, I already said that one, Avon, Farmington, yeah, 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 yeah. Come on the rain.